Hallelujah. I want to do a very brief teaching on what I have titled true worship. Turn to your neighbor say true worship. That's the phrase that I picked right out of the Bible. If you follow me with your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 from the Good News Translation. I'd like for us to read it in concert. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. I'd like for us to read it together. I want to read from the Good News Translation. Are we there? All right. No, Good News Translation, that's not good news. Romans 12, 1. Not 1, 12. All right, great. Let's read together. One, two, go. So then, my brothers, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. Is that? Okay, all right. Let's go. One, two, go. So then, my brothers, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. There you have it. The phrase, true worship. Now, Paul does not just say worship, but he qualifies the worship by adding the adjective true. Now, when we see that, it forces us to think that if there is true worship, there must automatically be false worship. When Paul qualifies the word worship with true, he is opening our eyes to see that there are all kinds of worship. And the reason why he is necessitated to add the word true is because there is false worship. Amen? Have you been in a conversation where somebody says, that guy is a true Christian? You know what that means? Because there are some Christians who profess, who are not really Christians. So when they add the adjective true, it's to say this guy is genuine. It's a word that says accurate, accredited, approved. So Paul is saying he wants us to offer true worship. And in the process, open our eyes to understand that there is false worship. If you look at the Bible in the book of John chapter 4 verse 23, I believe, Jesus repeats almost the same thought line. It says, the time is coming when the true worshipers, you see that again? When the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So we have both Paul and Jesus not only mentioning worship but qualifying worship with the words true. In other words, there is true worship and there is false worship. The fact that we have both Jesus and Paul talking about one thing and using almost the same words, true and worship, means it must be something that is really important to God. And so we want to dig into the word of God and find out what is true worship. I'm sure if I ask a question and I ask um, around, what is worship? Most of the answers I will get is that worship is a slow song, you know? <laughs> you know, because we have what we call praise and worship. Praise is, hey, my God is good. Then worship is, you are awesome in this place. For many of us, we determine worship by the pace of the song. By the pace of the song. But is that all there is to worship? Is that the true definition of worship? What really is true worship? 
I heard the story of a great man, probably one of the most prolific songwriters of our time, a man called Matt Redman. Um, how many of you know Heart of Worship? I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Yeah, that's a song that was written by this man called Matt Redman. One of my favorite songs is one of the songs that portrays what is the true meaning of worship. Now, they asked Matt Redman, what made you write that song, Heart of Worship? What were the circumstances that led to your writing Heart of Worship? And he said at a particular time in his church, his pastor was teaching them about what real worship was. But in order to teach them what real worship was, he banned singing for one month in the church. Are we together? The pastor was trying to teach them what real worship was. But in order to teach them what real worship was, he said there will be no singing in the church for one month. Now, all of you are looking at me funny because I can imagine that it was confusing for them as well. How can you ask us to worship without singing? He banned singing for one month, yet he was teaching them about worship and asking them to worship. There was a whole lot of confusion, but at the end, they understood that the pastor was trying to teach them that worship is more than just a song. Worship is more than just a song. It was at the end of that experience, Pastor Phil, that Matt Redman wrote the song Heart of Worship. And I want to read out the lyrics of the first verse. It says, when the music fades, awesome. When the music fades and all is stripped away. He said, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. And then I love this line. He says, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself. In other words, even when I'm singing a song, it's more than just music. He said, is this not what you have required? Then he said, you search much deeper within through the way things appear. And then he adds, you're looking into my heart. Matt Redman discovered at the end of that experience that when it comes to worship, God is more concerned about the song on your heart, not the song on your lips. I'll say that again. When it comes to worship, God is more interested in the song of your heart and not the song on your lips. Jesus speaking said, they worship with their lips, but their hearts are far away. In other words, what I'm really interested in is their heart, but all they are offering me is their lips. What I really want is their hearts, but all I have is their lips. You want to hear my definition for worship? Worship is the song your life sings when your lips are not moving. Worship is the song that your life sings when your lips are not moving. Worship is not what your lips do, it's what your heart does. Many years ago, I, I wrote a quote and I put it online. I said, music introduced me to worship, then worship taught me that it goes beyond the music. I'll say that again. Music introduced me to worship, and then worship taught me that it goes beyond the music. You see, music, worship is more than just music. It's more than just a song. Worship is the totality of your lifestyle. Worship is what your heart does, not what your lips sing. Now, this should come as great comfort to those of you who have been accused of singing off-key. <laughs> right? <laughs> You know those people who, when they stand by you in praise and worship, you're like, oh my God. Now you can turn and say, hey, it's not about the accuracy of my notes, all right? 
All right? It's about the melody of my heart. What music is my heart making? That's worship. That's worship. For we have not learned how to worship until we can worship without music. We have not learned how to worship. Worship is not 30 minutes of praise and worship, you know, in church. It's the song that your life sings on Monday morning. That's worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is who you are. Worship is what you do. The songs that we sing are only an outward expression of the song our heart is already singing. And so singing is just one expression of worship. Giving is worship. Eating is worship. Sleeping is worship. Worship, in my view, is living in the continuous consciousness of the presence of God. And doing all things as unto God. Whether I'm eating as unto God. Whether I'm sleeping as unto God. Doing all things recognizes God, recognizing, recognizing that God, <laughs> God is present. Amen? Amen? Singing is only an outward expression of the music that your heart is already singing. So I want to ask you, if I plug a microphone to your heart, would the song of your heart match the song of your lips? Million dollar question. Ladies, let me ask you, ladies in the house, which of these two men would you like to be married to? Um, There's the one guy who is very romantic, good with his words, you know. You are the apple of my eye. You are the only mosquito in my mosquito net. (laughs) You know, the kind of guy who gets home before you, you know, and cooks you dinner, dims the light, candles, and then you enter and it's like, baby, welcome. (laughs) Right? Now, before you say, yes, yes, that's the guy I want, hear the rest of the story. So this guy is smooth, romantic, has all the right words, but there are four other girls like you. And he's equally as sweet and romantic to each of them. Now that's guy number one. (laughs) Or guy number two who may not be as romantic, but his heart is committed to you and he is dedicated to pleasing you. Ladies, please, which guy will you choose? If your guy is number one, me and Pastor Phil will have a special deliverance service for you (laughs) after this. (laughs) Right? Because in the end, what you really want in the relationship is not romance, it's committed heart. Someone who is there for me. What? Oh, yeah, why why not? It can be both. (laughs) God will grant you your heart desire, my sister. (laughs) But the point is this. If you have to choose between heart and lips. Heart. So God is looking for your heart. He's saying, don't just sing me fancy songs that you have rehearsed. Because, you see, we sing some songs, we don't even think about the lyrics, you know. We don't even think about the lyrics. We're just, it's just liturgic. It's something we've become used to doing. It's just a song. But worship is the totality of who you are. Everything that you do is considered as worship. Are we together? Let's look at... Um, Um, I wrote here in my notes that in the end, worship is more about commitment to God than creative lyrics. Worship is more about commitment to God than creative lyrics. Worship is more about responsibility than romance. 
Worship is more about sacrifice than songs. True worship is more about the life that you live than the song that you sing. Let's see Romans chapter 12, verse 1 from Good News Translation one more time. I want to bring a couple of points from the scripture. I don't intend to talk for too long. I already made my point. I just want to say a couple of things. Romans 12, 1 from the Good News Translation. We already read it. All right. It says, so then, my brothers, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. Tell to your neighbor, say, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. First thing I want you to see from this scripture is that Paul sets forth the reason of our worship or the reason for our worship. The reason that he gives why we should worship is because of God's great mercy. In other words, our motivation for worship, our worship should be a response to the mercy of God. Worship becomes easier when you are conscious of the grace and mercy of God. When you realize how undeserving you are. When you realize how you did not deserve it. The Bible does not only say we were lost, Pastor Phil. It says we were dead. While we were yet sinners, we were undeserving. So when you realize how undeserving you are and you have a consciousness of the mercy of God, then worship happens. Worship is our response to an understanding of the mercy and grace of God. Like the song we sang, um, um, empty-handed, but alive in your hand. So worship is the response to the mercy and grace of God. One of the words for worship in the Greek is the word proskineo. Proskineo, P-R-O-S-K-Y-E-N-E-O, proskineo. It's from two words, Pastor Phil. Pros, which means to lean forward, and kineo, which means dog. Now the idea is of a dog bowing down to lick its master's hand. And that's the word that is used for worship. It's an understanding of undeservedness. Now, if you understand how Jews regarded dogs, Jews hated dogs and pigs. Hated. They still still do. Hate. Isn't it not interesting that in describing worship, they would put the word dog, despite their disgust, For the animal. They are showing how unworthy we are in comparison to the one that we worship. It's a picture of saying, I'm nothing without you. I'm empty. I'm just like a dog licking its master's hand. It's a picture of our undeservedness. When we get to the point where we realize how undeserving we are, then worship will begin. You know, one of the things that destroys relationships is an entitlement mentality. Let me give an example. Um, let's say you and a girl are dating, not married yet. When she brings food to your house as a single man, you're like, ah, thank you. But when you get married and you begin to see it as your right, the salt, there's no salt in this food. What's changed? The man now feels entitled to the food. Sometimes because we feel entitled to life, we come before God and we have a very liturgic Approach to worship until we realize we don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his goodness. We were dead. We were nothing until he chose us. Worship begins when we realize the mercy and the grace of God. 
Worship is our response. If you read from the King James Version, it says, um, um, present yourselves acceptable unto God, for this is your reasonable service. The word reasonable is from the Greek word logikos, where we get logical. So he's saying the logical response to the mercy of God is worship. Logical. If you just... If God loved me enough to die for me, I should love him enough to live for him. Worship is the logical response to the mercy and the grace of God. We have to be careful as Christians not to worship God only when things are good. We have to be careful not to worship God only when things are good. The devil asked God a question, one of those rare times in the Bible where God and the devil had a conversation. He said to him, has Job loved you for nothing? In other words, if you took away all the things that you have given to Job, if you took away his children, if you took away his money, if you took away his good life, will Job still worship you with nothing? Job proved that his worship was not dependent on the performance of God because he said, even if you slay me, yet will I serve you. That's true worship. That's true worship. Where my worship is not dependent on the conditions of my life. I have a worship that is constant, irrespective of what I'm going through. When things are good, when things are bad. I love the song that says, you are God alone from before time began. You are on your throne. It says, and right now, even in the good and the bad, God is still God, irrespective of what you're going through. God still deserves your worship. If all he ever did for you was the cross, you still owe him worship. I'm still behind on my praise if all he ever did was die for me. God ain't got to do nothing, no more. If the cross is all he has done for you, that's enough. Are we together? It's your logical response. I saw something in Psalms chapter 1 verse 2 yesterday, speaking about an undying faith and worship for God, irrespective of what we're going through. Psalms 1 verse 2. Very popular scripture. See this. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, at first reading, the words day and night would seem like he's saying in the morning and in the night, right? So you're meditating in the morning, you're meditating in the night, your mind is full of God. But I checked the word for night in the original Hebrew. It's the word leil. And yes, it does mean nighttime. But it's also figurative of a dark season in your life. So what's the point? In his law does he meditate when things are good and when things are bad. Irrespective of my circumstances, I will meditate on your word. My mind will still be full of you. Irrespective of how I'm living. Because my circumstances don't determine my faith. My circumstances don't determine my worship. I have a constancy of love for God. You know, there are times that God will permit pain in your life to get your attention. It's C.S. Lewis that said, pain is God's megaphone. <laughs> pain is God's megaphone. God loves you too much that he will not allow you to be distracted. So you put pain and you will pray again. <laughs> it's called uncomfortable grace. <laughs> How that God hates the proud. So you put circumstances in your life that will humble you so that he can love you. <laughs> <laughs> uncomfortable grace we don't preach it enough <laughs> many are the trials of a righteous man many are the trials of a righteous man you see when we think of the test of God I'm deviating when we think of the test of God 
when the Bible says that he comes to test our faith, we should not think of the test, we should not think of God as an examiner. We should think of him as a metallurgist. You know who a metallurgist is? Those people who refine metals. The only way to get the best out of a metal, like gold, is to put it through fire. So the trial of your faith is not God saying, will he pass or will he fail? It's no. He wants to bring out the best from you. God is not examining you. Christ has passed the exam already. All right? All right? So the test, when you read test in the word, it's a test of passing you through so you can come out better. The best way to get orange juice is to squeeze orange. So to get the juices of your life, God will put you in fire sometimes. (laughs) Come on, say there's juice in my life. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Let me read you Daniel chapter 3 from verse 16 from the Living Bible. Daniel, (laughs) I'm juicy. (laughs) Praise God, hallelujah. Daniel 3.16 from the Living Bible. See what the three Hebrew boys said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, somebody say if not. In other words, we know he can deliver us. God can bring us out of this fire. But even if he chooses not to, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set. It doesn't matter which fire I am in. My heart will still be fixed on Jesus. Let's go back to Romans 12.1, our text. Romans 12.1. Now, it says, so then, my, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. And it says, offer yourselves. He didn't say offer a song. He said, offer yourselves. You know, God wants you, not your song. If he has you, then he automatically has your song. God wants you. Don't just come to church and sing withholding nothing until it's time for offering. <laughs> withholding nothing. But then you have the pocket for the 500 naira and the pocket for the 20 naira. All right? I used to do that as a kid. My parents would give me money for offering, but I, I have the big money in my right pocket and the small money in my left. So when it's time for offering, my hands are going straight to my left pocket, you know? So, he says, I want you to offer yourselves. Let the songs that you sing and the hands that you lift be an expression of what's in your heart. Then, I like the next phrase, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is probably one of the biggest paradoxes in the word of God. Living sacrifice. Why? Because in the Old Testament, a sacrifice was an animal that was killed. It died. But God calls us now to be alive, yet sacrifices. Alive, yet dying. It means that I'm alive, but each day I have a funeral service to my flesh. Each day I must die to my will. Each day I must die to my emotions. Each day I must die to my desires. It means that tomorrow, Pastor Phil, I must be less of Daniel Ado than I am today. Sometimes the most spiritual worship is to say, not my will but yours be done. 
Worship shows itself in how much you are willing to give up for God. David said, I will not give to God something that costs me nothing. Worship is about dying. <laughs> Worship is about dying. Pastor Phil, if I slapped you, <laughs> there will be a lecturer in you, the old man, that will say, Kai. Now I'm a cardinal boy, Kai. <laughs> I will say, Kai, slap him. There will be another lecturer, the spirit, that will say, turn the other cheek. If you decide to turn the other cheek, you have just died. Something inside you has died. You have sacrificed. So worship are saying, this is what I want to do, but not my will. Yours be done. Sacrifice. John speaking said, I must decrease so that he can increase. That's worship. <laughs> That's worship. Worship is about removing emphasis from me and placing it all on Christ. Not my will. I have a will. There's things I want to do, but I love God too much to break his heart. Not my will, but yours be done. When I was young, younger, because I'm still young, when I was younger, I would preach a lot about, you know, the priority of Christ. And one of the things I used to teach was, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you know, morning devotion, the first person you should speak to in a day is God because you're giving him priority. But then I realized something, that after that morning devotion, Pastor Phil, that's the end. No thoughts of God, no thoughts of church, no thoughts of anything after devotion. God said to me, I want to be more than an event on your calendar. I want to be your life. So I have gone from morning devotion to a life devoted to God. There are two very different things. It's possible to just have him number one, and then you move to number two, number three. But God is saying, I want to be the center of all your affairs. I want to be the filter through which you pass all your activities. So that when I'm eating, I'm eating as unto the Lord. So that when I'm giving, I'm giving as unto the Lord. Worship is the totality of everything that you do. God said, I want to be more than an event on your calendar. Daniel, I want to be your life. Let me read you a message version of Romans 12.1. I think it passes the, the message very clearly. Praise God, hallelujah. Romans 12.1 from the message version says, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your, somebody say, everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping eating, going to walk, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. And I love this. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Oh, glory, hallelujah. That's a good word. Placing Christ at the center of all your affairs. Crowning him on the altar of your heart. Very quickly, as I prepare to close, and we go into some time of worship. John chapter 4 from verse 20 to 24. I want to show you a few facts about worship. John chapter 4, from verse 20 to 24. All right. It says, um, what version is that? All right. Our ancestors worship. Now, this is the conversation between Jesus and the woman by the well. You know, Jesus met a woman and he began to talk to her. I said, give me water. And they had this conversation. Now, watch this. It says, our ancestors worship on this mountain. That's the woman speaking. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. I want to give you four facts about worship from this scripture. Number one, worship is not location dependent. Worship is not location dependent. You see, those days, God resided primarily only in the temple or sometimes in a designated high place. So if you wanted to worship, you had to go to those places. But now, we are the temple. We are now the temple. God does not reside in a tabernacle made with hands. He resides in us. So worship happens wherever you are. And sacrifices are made in the altar of your heart. We no longer have to go to an altar to worship. So worship is not location dependent. Let's read on. It says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Second fact about worship. Worship must be done in the knowledge of God. Worship must be done in the knowledge of God. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. You can't worship God as a stranger. Worship is really about intimacy. That is why if you want to worship effectively, you cannot compromise on your study of the word of God. Amen? It says you worship what you don't know. You can't worship God as a stranger. It's about relationship. The worst thing in the world, Pastor Phil, is zeal without knowledge. To be so eager, to be so zealous, yet wrong. Powerfully wrong. <laughs> it's the worst thing. To be so dedicated to God, yet wrong. So, worship must be done in the knowledge of God. We read on, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father. Number three, we worship our Father, not a judge. We worship our Father. It is very deliberate that he does not say we'll worship God. He says we'll worship the Father because our worship is intimate, it is personal. We worship our Father. The person, the object of our worship is God the Father. We are not worshiping a judge. We're not trying to convince a judge to hear our case. No, in worship, it is intimate. It's when we come in contact with our Father. You know, all those Christians who pray with all the names of God. (laughs) Sidikenu. You know, God said to me one day, when you go to your father, do you go and say, Oh, great Bishop Fred Ado, thou general of the gospel? No. He's my father. Hi, dad. I am convinced that if some people in this church witness my prayer session, they'll be offended. Because I feel speak broken to God, though. God, how far? Because our worship is intimate, it's about loving on your father. Amen? It's about loving on your father. Worship is a life lived out of love for God. You know? We have to get to the point where we are romantic with God and we are intimate with God. Some people will tell you that worship is intercourse. And in reality, worship is coming into communion with God. 
koinonia. How many of you are ready to worship God? Lift your hands to Jesus. Just lift your hands to Jesus. Worship is intimate. When the music fades and all is stripped away. Thank you, sweet Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let me just hear you just pray in the spirit for a bit. I want to worship you with more than just my lips, Lord Jesus. Let the songs that I sing and the hearts, hands that I lift be an expression of what is in my heart. I'm going to be doing a song very soon. Let me just read you one scripture and we pray again. I want to show you the difference between life in the new covenant and life in the old covenant where worship is concerned. Exodus 24 from verse 1 to 2. Look at what the Bible says. Exodus 24, 1 to 2. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. But watch this. And worship ye afar off. So they worshipped, but they had to worship from afar. We are in the era where, you see, Christianity is the only religion where the worship lives inside the worshiper. <laughs> the worship resides inside the worshiper. So we don't have to stand afar. The veil has been turned. We can come into the presence of our Father. If you've never felt that intimate love, it's because you've been trying to worship a judge. You have not come to understand the place of God as Abba, my Father. Lift your hands to Jesus.